All right, our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that you declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Painador. Merry Christmas. Welcome to what is the first Sunday of the Advent season uh, and is also the beginning of the annual church calendar. Some of you may know Advent season kicks off the annual church calendar, and the church calendar is really set up for us to mark the various movements of the life of Christ. That's why the calendar was given to us, that we would be able to orient our lives according to the life of Jesus, actually define the seasons of our lives by way of his movements, his incarnation on the earth. And so Advent is the beginning of that calendar, because in the Advent season, we anticipate the arrival of the Lord Jesus on the earth, the incarnation of God into flesh, the very word of God made flesh and living among us. And then the calendar, of course, moves into Christmas and the 12 days of Christmas when we remember and celebrate the arrival of the Lord Jesus among us, that he moved in on our block and did not leave us to guess as to what God is like, but actually demonstrated to us in a living, breathing, growing human person what it is that God is like for us. He showed us divine personhood in human flesh so that we might know 
God. And then the calendar moves into this great season of Epiphany in January, just meaning manifestation. The season of Epiphany highlights and reminds us of the manifestation of God on the earth in Christ. And then, of course, we move into the season of Lent, wherein the Lord Jesus begins his descent toward the cross, comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration, and begins to move in sorrow into all of the brokenness and ruin that sin has perpetrated on the earth over that great 40-day period of the Lenten season during the spring. Holy Week, of course, the culmination of Lent, when we celebrate Palm Sunday, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, and then the last week of Jesus' life, him preparing himself to go to the cross for our atonement. We celebrate that atonement on Good Friday. We remember that great heroic act of Christ laying down his life for us on Holy Saturday, Jesus lying silently in the place of the dead, taking our place among the dead so that on Easter Sunday he might rise from death and conquer that great enemy of us all, triumph over the grave, triumph over all of sin and ruin and wreckage and the forces of darkness in the world and usher in a new creation. Jesus came to make all things new, to make everything sad come untrue, as Lewis says, and ushers us into this great season of Eastertide, where in the church calendar then we celebrate and remember that we now live in that new creation, that we are now filled with that new resurrection spirit of life, that death no longer has dominion in our members, sin no longer has dominion in our bodies, that the forces of darkness don't own us, that we've been set free in Christ, and so we celebrate in that great season of Easter tide, carrying us then all the way into the summer months and ordinary time, and the fall months, ordinary time, and bringing us back around again next year for the start of the Advent season and the return to the calendar all over again. What a gift from church tradition this is for us. It's church tradition that has preserved this calendar for us and offers it to us as a way to orient our lives. What I love about the church calendar is that it requires no ingenuity on our part to come up with new ways to stir ourselves up, to stir up our affection for the Lord Jesus, to remember the life and work of the Lord Jesus. The church calendar simply arrives It simply is upon us. Advent is simply here. That's the end of the story. No matter where you are at in your life or in your heart condition at present, Advent is here. So if the arrival of Advent season, if the arrival of Advent and Christmas for you is a painful thing, if it conjures memories of disappointment or family failure, so be it. It is here. If the arrival of the Advent season leads you into a place of nostalgia where there is much family time and rejoicing and work must be set aside, so be it. It is as it is. The Advent season meets us wherever we are. It is not dependent on us conjuring it up. It is not dependent on us building it up being ingenious enough to think up some new way to celebrate the Lord Jesus, he simply arrives. 
He meets us exactly where we are. He meets us in the current station and condition of our lives. There's no say in it for us. And that's where you now find yourself, on the threshold of the Advent season, being ushered into this place of expectation, whatever that may mean for you this year. Wherever your heart and life may be this year, Jesus is breaking in there. And that will mean different things to us, different things for us. My youngest of four children, some of you know, little Bodie, um, he's affectionately known as Four Eyes now in our house recently. Uh, <laughs> affectionately, I said. Um, he, has, he has no real concept yet of how to gauge the passage of time. He's five, of course. So when you tell Bodhi that we'll be doing something that he really wants to do tomorrow, his response is often, like, after breakfast? (laughs) Well, not exactly. (laughs) And then he's rather confused when tomorrow arrives and you announce to him that we'll be doing this thing that you really want to do today, and he says, wait, I thought you said we'd do it tomorrow, right? He's very confused by these things. So you can imagine <laughs> that when we announce to him after the Thanksgiving holiday that it's Christmas time, and when we tell him he has to wait four weeks, this is like a cruel and sick joke to a five-year-old, right? Four weeks, that's like half his life, right? <laughs> But the point is when Advent arrives whether it drags on endlessly as it does for a five-year-old or whether it races by as it seems to for the rest of us, it does not depend on our permission. It pounces upon us. It comes at us, irrespective of whether we may want it or feel like we are ready for it. It is an immovable force (laughs) that is working on our lives. And it's so instructive to us in that regard. The whole church calendar is so instructive to us in that regard because it teaches us actually the way that God works in our lives. God is an immovable force in our lives. Getting caught in the life of God is like being dropped into a fast-flowing river wherein swimming against the current is to no avail. You can resist this river or not, It matters not one bit. You will wind up downstream either way. The grace of God working out his salvation in the world is moving you somewhere. And it does not require your permission. It does not require your contributions. This is the church calendar's great teaching to us. The story of the life of Jesus plods along. And we are simply guests in that grand unfolding story. We cannot change it. We cannot bend it, though we might try. This is where the church calendar is so helpful to us in knowing God. Really, all the life of faith is, is acknowledging that you are in that river. Acknowledging that you are in the river of God's saving grace and embracing that he is good, that the outcomes that he is bringing about in your life are good, that he ultimately is telling the story of your rescue and your salvation, of the world's rescue and salvation 
and that we can trust him in that, that we can trust him, that we can let the river carry us. The ancient king David was forced to reckon with this reality when he achieved his highest point of power and authority and greatness. The King David, who ruled over Israel in the year circa 1000 BC, the same King David who wrote much of our Psalms in the Old Testament, when he achieved this great moment of power and authority and prestige in Israel, he was the most powerful person in all of Israel. And his military strategy and military approach had succeeded in crushing all of Israel's enemies, and there was great prosperity in Israel during the time of David. His economic policies had led to the building of much wealth in Israel. And David began to be troubled because he noticed that even as the nation of Israel was flourishing, even as the people of Israel were building homes and rooting themselves there, establishing for themselves a nation, he noticed that as he himself and his family were living in luxury in the royal court, that none of those luxuries were being afforded to the religious institutions of Israel. That the people were all living in houses made of cedar, permanent houses built with the great forests of Lebanon, David himself living in a glorious home constructed in that same fashion, and yet the Ark of the Covenant the special dwelling place of God remained in a tent. And this troubled David. He was curious as to why that might be. Why has God not instructed to this point that we build a permanent residence for him? Why is God not putting roots down here with us? Why are we not being told to build a proper temple for God? Why is he being left in a tent David was troubled by this, and he prayed to God and asked why this might be. God, why are you remaining a nomad among us? Why are you remaining a wanderer among us, still living as we lived when we wandered in the wilderness, not acknowledging that we are now an established nation? And so David asks, why no house for you, Lord? And the word of the Lord comes back to David with an answer through the prophet Nathan. We read this answer in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, wherein God says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. It is as though God here is saying to David, I keep my own time. I have my own plans. I know when it is that I will be building a house for myself. I know how it is that I'll be establishing that house for myself. I know where I live. I come and go as I please. God tells David specifically, I won't be needing you to build me that house. I won't be needing you to build me that temple. It will be your offspring after you 
that I will be employing to build that temple. Now we know from the scriptures that David's son, Solomon, succeeded him as king in Israel, and that Solomon was instructed by Yahweh, was instructed by God to go about building a permanent temple in Israel. And Solomon did so. But that temple that Solomon constructed, of course, was sacked and torn to the ground in the year 587 B.C., when the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem and took many who lived there into exile. And so this temple that Solomon built was destroyed, much to the chagrin of the people of Israel. And the temple was then rebuilt 70 years later under the oversight of the prophet Nehemiah in the year 516 B.C., But that subsequent temple, that second temple, suffered the same fate as the first. It was torn down, destroyed in 70 AD when the Roman authorities put to rest a Jewish rebellion. And the temple now has no longer existed two millennia on. So when we read these prophecies in 2 Samuel about God raising up the offspring of David to establish a eternal and eternal kingdom for himself to establish an eternal house for himself we know from history that we cannot be referring there to these temporary architectural structures these temporary temples first built by Solomon and then later by Nehemiah these architectural temples rose and fell rose and fell and they have not risen again. Even if someday there is a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem, seems unlikely politically, but should it come to pass, even that would not be a permanent temple. It would be only a temporary temple. See, because the kingdom of God, the house of God that was to come from David's offspring, it was not to come from the hand of Solomon was not to come from the hand of Nehemiah, since God does not live in temples built by human hands as though he needed anything from us. The temple that God meant to build would be built by his own hands. He meant to make for himself his own home. And the angel said to her, famously, Luke chapter 1, Do not be afraid, Mary, For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." Here's the big idea. We, all of us, are guests in the grand unfolding story of God's Son. It's a story that was conceived before the foundations of the world. It's a story that God is working out perfectly in his time. It's a story that for all of the turns of history, we have not been able to bend one direction or the other. 
God has built his temple in the person of Jesus Christ. He's built his temple in the Son, in the Lord Jesus, in the incarnation of God on the earth. That's who Jesus is. That's who we are celebrating in the Advent season. It is a living, breathing temple of God. It is the arrival of the long-sought-after house of God on the earth. Where is God on the earth? Where is God dwelling amongst us? How do we know where he is? How do we know where to meet him? Where can we go and worship him? Where can we draw near to him? What temple do we have to commune with him, to know our Father, to know our Maker? It's the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the temple of God. He is the incarnation of God on the earth. If you want to know the Father, get to know Jesus. Jesus is the manifestation of God for us. He teaches us who God is. He shows us who God is. You can see how immovable this story is. That no matter the circumstance of history, no matter the longings of people's hearts, no matter our attempts to contribute to the story in some way, it moves on like a river, taking us downstream and establishes finally for us the dwelling place of God with man. That's what the arrival of Jesus brings about. God is saying to us, I will not be God without you. I will only be God with you. He will only be God with us. He means to live among us through Christ. And then the only question for us then is, will we receive him? Will we receive this temple of God? Will we receive this Christ? Will we come into communion with God? See, Jesus has done away with all of our petty excuses that would prevent us from traveling to temple, that would prevent us from going in to meet and commune with God. No longer are there any concerns over whether we are good enough to have friendship with God. Jesus has paid the penalty of sin. He has solved the sin problem forever. No longer is there any concern as to whether we can ascend to God. Jesus has descended to us. He has come to be with us. The only question that remains is, will you have this Jesus? Will you receive this Christ? Will you know him? Will you love him? Will you walk with him? He is calling each one of us to himself. He is offering God to each one of us in himself. The temple of God is open to all people. He means to commune with all of us. The temple is complete. Advent is here. All the work is done. There's no temple to make. There's no voyage to make. There's no journey to make. There's only a God to receive, only a Christ to know, only a Lord to obey, only forgiveness to cover us. There's a way to live. We very easily slip into this way to live where we begin to believe that the outcomes of our lives are up to us. We think that it's up to us to solve the riddle of our life, to determine how everything turns out. 
that it's on me to marry the right person, that it's on me to keep my friends and family safe, that it's on me to pursue the right career, that it's on me to live in the right location, that it's on me to choose the right church. We believe that all these outcomes of our lives are our responsibility, that it's on me to justify my existence in some way, to spend my days in a way that proves I'm valid, that I've done something worthwhile, to tell my story in a way that makes it count. But that whole way of thinking, not only is it exhausting, it's faithless because it denies the advent. It denies what God has done in Christ. It denies that God is telling the story and that it does not bend this way or that depending on our contributions or permissions to it. God is telling the story of our lives. Or better said, our lives are merely a part of the grand unfolding story of God. We are caught up in a story much bigger than ourselves, and he's in charge of the outcomes. He builds the temple. He raises the dead. Not King David, not King Solomon, not Nehemiah, not you, not me. We do not work our way into God's favor so that we might receive good outcomes in our life. God affects good outcomes in our life because he has favored us in Christ. We are caught in the river of grace and we are flowing downstream. Only do not pretend that you even could resist it. Lay down your resistance to him. Receive all of this good that he is bringing to you. You are invited into this story to notice that God is telling this story in your life to notice the shape that your life is taking and receive it as a good gift from God. That it's not up to you to reshape it. It's not up to you to tell a different kind of story. It's up to you to receive it, to be carried in this current of grace. Your life is yours to live, but it's not yours to solve. It's not yours to figure out. It's yours to receive. It's yours to embrace as a good gift from God. That means that you can live true, being honest with yourself or others, doing good to all people, paying attention to the people and the turns that God brings before you, and then let the outcomes be what they will be. What a liberating way to be in the world. There are many ways to be in the world, but to live true and let the outcomes be what they will be is the great adventure of receiving the grace of God. Some of you, I know because I talk to you, you live in perpetual anxiety, perpetual paralysis, always terrified that you will take the wrong step in life. Others of you, you live in perpetual frenzy, always terrified that you will somehow miss out on some opportunity, never sure that anything good will happen to you unless you make it happen. God says, you're in my river. 
It's all the story of my son. Everything in your life is worked out as the story of my son, and the advent of his life is upon us. David saw this through eyes of faith. Of course, David had no idea how it was that God would bring to, ba- bring to pass the construction of a temple, how it was that God would make a house for himself. But David trusted the promise of God and prayed, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. It's not on you to build the temple. It's not on you to construct the good life for yourself. You are in the river of God. You are in the current of grace. You are suspended in his hands. He is telling the story of his son through you and in you. Receive it. Leave the outcomes to him. The advent is upon us. Life is here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you that you haven't left us to solve our lives on our own, figure things out on our own, but that you have come to us in the person of Jesus and that you now fill us with his very spirit, his very life by your spirit. Father, we ask for faith. We ask for the faith of Jesus, for the faith of David, to see your hand at work in our lives, to trust your promises, that you are carrying us along in a current of grace, in a current of salvation to somewhere good, though we may not know how or why. Lord, I pray you'd fill this church with that spirit, that we would be people who live true and leave the outcomes to you. That we'd be people who notice one another, notice the people that you bring into our way. Pay attention, love, serve, give, and trust you to take us home. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.